Hi, welcome to Bookie, which unlock big ideas from world bestsellers in audio, text, and mind map. Please download Bookie at Apple Store or Google Play with more features. Get your free mind snack now. Today we will unlock the book What is this thing called science? Most people regard science as being objective and trustworthy, and perhaps a little mysterious. Some people even like to back their own work or products with science, as this makes them appear more authoritative. For instance, advertisers like to brag about their products in a scientific tone, and some churches even claim that science has proven that the Bible is true. It's not hard to see that science is highly esteemed and has become synonymous with professionalism and authority. So what is so special about science? Where does its authority come from? What is the scientific method that everyone celebrates? What are the requirements for a discipline to be called science? And how does one distinguish between science and pseudoscience? The book What is this thing called science as you will learn in this bookie was written to elucidate and answer questions of this kind. The author Alan Chalmers tells us that our understanding of science continues to evolve throughout history, and there is no universal standard that can be applied to all disciplines. As we study the different stages of the development of science, we will realize that, the so-called science is just like a primary school student, that improves their ability to understand the world by constantly learning from their past mistakes. After all, modern science as we know it today has only developed over the last three to four hundred years. Alan E. Chalmers himself was a scientist. He received a master's degree in physics and a doctoral degree in the history and philosophy of science. Chalmers spent many years working as a visiting scholar in the Department of Philosophy at Flinders University. Later on, he was appointed as associate professor in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Sydney. As you can see from his educational background and academic appointments, Chalmers was a scholar who established connections between science and philosophy through studying the history of science. This book What is this thing called science is the brainchild of his research in this field, and it is widely used by universities around the world as a textbook on the philosophy of science. What can we ordinary people get out from this book? Well, two things at least. First, it teaches us how to learn across disciplines. As you might know, three famous investors, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and Ray Dalio, all have repeatedly emphasized the importance of interdisciplinary learning. If you do study across disciplines, you would know that many disciplines are closely related to the philosophy of science. After reading this book What is this thing called science, you will have a systematic understanding of science itself, and it will be much easier for you to study other disciplines. Second, this book is also quite useful to our work and daily life. For example, you can identify pseudoscience through the lens of falsificationism, make good investment decisions by using Bayesian approaches, and quickly grasp the core knowledge of a discipline using a structuralist perspective, and the list goes on. Next, we will unlock this book in the following four parts. Part 1, A Traditional View of Science Based on Observable Facts. Part 2, a structural view of science based on theoretical frameworks. Part 3, an emerging view of science based on the concept of probability and experimentation. Part 4, ontology, how far are we from reality? Let's start with part 1, 
a traditional view of science based on observable facts. Modern science originated in Europe in the early 17th century, when the strategy of using observed facts as the basis for science was seriously adopted for the first time. This method should never be underestimated. While observation is now commonly used prior to the 17th century to most people, observable facts were not taken seriously as the foundation for knowledge. Rather, knowledge was based largely on the authority of Aristotle and the Bible. It was only when this authority was challenged by pioneers like Galileo that modern science became possible. The often told story of Galileo and the Leaning Tower of Pisa nicely illustrates this point. Galileo carried two iron balls to the top of the tower, one weighing 100 pounds and the other weighing just one pound. He then simultaneously dropped the two balls, which eventually struck the ground at the same time. This experiment directly showed that objects of different weights fall at the same speed. Galileo's experiment showed the public for the first time the power of observation, and it challenged the authority. Didn't Aristotle say that the heavier object would fall more quickly? Well, I'm going to do this experiment under your nose, and you are going to see yourself if he is right. As a result, the old wisdom was toppled, and modern science was born with a new strategy to acquire knowledge. That scientific knowledge is derived from observable facts, is what Chalmers calls a common-sense view of science. So more specifically, how can we derive scientific knowledge from observable facts? One of the most important methods is induction, which can be demonstrated by the following statement. If a large number of A's have been observed under a wide variety of conditions, and if all those A's without exception possess the property B, then all A's have the property B. This may sound complicated, but let's go back to Galileo's experiment as an example. If we repeat the experiment many times at different heights and at different locations and get the same result, we can conclude that the speed of a falling body has nothing to do with its weight. We call this reasoning method of acquiring scientific knowledge by using inductive inference the inductivist view of science, or inductivism. Inductivism has an immediate appeal. It is straightforward and provides useful conclusions simply by observation. As Chalmers tells us in the book, inductivism has three main advantages, namely its objectivity, simplicity, and usefulness. Inductivism is objective, which means that all conclusions derived from inductivism are based exclusively on observations that can be made by everyone, and not just one's own experience or subjective judgments. Then, it's simple because inductivism can be easily learned and put into use. Lastly, inductivism is useful because conclusions derived from inductivism may solve practical problems. Even today, hundreds of years after Galileo showed his inductive experiment, we still often use inductive inference in our daily life and work. For example, you may observe that good quality and fresh vegetables are usually gone by the afternoon. So you conclude if you want to buy fresh food, you'd better schedule your grocery shopping in the early morning. This is induction. However, the inductivist method has many problems and limits in its application in science. The first problem is that observation may not be reliable. For example, we probably have all been fooled by works of visual arts. Some artists once drew what appeared like a big hole on the road, which scared the wits out of pedestrians and made them walk away. 
Also, our observations are heavily shaped by our prior knowledge. For instance, you can visualize the actual shape of an object from its 3D drawing if you have taken solid geometry classes. But an unschooled person from a remote place won't get it, because he or she doesn't have the prior knowledge. All they would perceive is just some strange lines. The second problem with inductivism is that many things are extremely difficult if not impossible to observe, such as protons, atoms, and the structure of DNA. We know that contemporary scientists have spent billions of dollars to build the Large Hadron Collider just to find new particles. You can imagine how difficult it is to make observations. The third problem is slightly more complicated. The amount of observable facts used for induction is always limited, so there is always the possibility of overgeneralization. You may have heard the story of the black swan. Europeans had only seen white swans, so they presumed that all swans were white. Only until they went to Australia and saw black swans did they realize they had made an incorrect judgment by taking a part for the whole. Yet, these three problems we have just discussed are even not the most serious problems of inductivism. Its biggest flaw is that inductive inferences are not supported by strict logic or deductive inferences. One of the simplest forms of logical reasoning is known as syllogism, by which a universal conclusion is derived based on a major premise and a minor one. For example, knowing that all cats have four legs, if you see a cat, one can safely say that it has four legs. So as long as the major premise that cats have four legs is true, and the minor premise that the animal in front of us is a cat is also true, the conclusion that this cat has four legs must be true. But inductivism has no logical reasoning of a similar kind, and exclusively relies on the repetition of observation and the accumulation of experience to draw any conclusions. This leaves inductivism in an embarrassing position in science. With the emergence of falsificationism, paradigms, and other new scientific approaches, inductivism has gradually faded away in the field of scientific research. However, it did make a great contribution, especially in the early days of modern science. Today, we still use induction as a quasi-scientific theory on less rigorous occasions. After inductivism comes falsificationism. The most well-known falsificationist is Karl Popper. In his opinion, science is a theory that can be falsified, but has not yet been falsified. What does this mean? It means that a theory may be proved wrong in the future, and as long as it has not been proved wrong, it is correct for the time being and it's still useful. For example, scientists discovered early on that bats are an amazing species, because they have very small and weak eyes and do most of their flying at night. So how did they avoid obstacles in a dark cave? Some scientists first speculated that it was probably due to the special anatomical structure of bats' eyes. So they decided to blindfold a group of bats before releasing them. Upon their observation, they found the bat's ability to avoid obstacles was not hindered at all. This meant that the hypothesis that bat's eyes have a special anatomical structure was wrong, and the hypothesis was falsified. Later, the scientists noted that bats have big ears, and assumed that their ears were involved in their ability to avoid obstacles. Once a bat's ears were plugged, sure enough they collided with obstacles. This means that falsification had failed and the hypothesis was right, that bat's ability to avoid obstacles had something to do with their hearing. 
Then scientists further suspected that the bat's mouth also played a role in avoiding obstacles. When the bats were gagged in the subsequent experiment, sure enough, the result of this experiment supported the bat's mouth hypothesis. Eventually, with this information and more experiments, scientists concluded that bats navigate by using their mouths to send out high-frequency sound waves, and their ears to capture the echoes. Because the theory has not been falsified, it stays true for the time being, and a scientific progress was made out of these experiments. As you can see, falsificationism is very practical. Falsificationists argue that a hypothesis must be falsifiable to become a part of science. Otherwise it is not science. What does that mean? In simple words, if your theory contains all possibilities, it's actually useless. A useful theory must run the risk of being falsified. Knowing this, you might have guessed what all kinds of pseudoscience have in common, that is they cannot be falsified. For example, let's say you are told by an astrologer that you will encounter love tomorrow from the northwest direction. On the next day, if you happen to meet a girl in the northwest corner of a library and you two connect immediately, the astrologer will say, look, love is about meeting and attracting someone. However, if you fail to talk to her, the astrologer will say, loneliness and expectations are some of the advanced features of love. As you can see, astrology will always have something to say to justify itself no matter what happens. In other words, astrology cannot be falsified, and thus it is pseudoscience. So, what are the advantages of falsificationism over inductivism? First, falsificationism can be supported by logical reasoning. It does not provide any support for a hypothesis under all circumstances, but serves to negate them in some cases. This is why it doesn't have the critical flaw of inductivism, which is that inductivism is not logically supported. Second, falsificationism makes progress iteratively. It can continuously test a hypothesis by making conjectures, experimenting, and refuting it. The BATS example that we just talked about demonstrates the iterative nature of falsificationism. It first falsified the theory that BATS navigate using their eyes. Then experiments results showed that bat's ability to avoid obstacles in the dark has something to do with its hearing, then with its mouth, and finally concluded that bats avoid obstacles by transmitting and receiving ultrasounds. Therefore, falsification is a very useful tool for scientific research as it makes iterations and progresses in small steps. Third, falsificationism values the progress of science rather than the truth of a theory. What you may recall about inductivism is that it always requires the scientist to gather more evidence to support the hypothesis. If the statement all swans are white because 100 swans are all white is not convincing enough, it probably will be after observing 10,000 swans. This exercise has value to some extent. But when applying the law of diminishing returns, the more repetitive evidence that is gathered, the less meaningful the exercise is. On the contrary, falsificationism does not concern whether the theory stays true all the time. It even hopes that the theory is wrong. This is because only when the previous hypotheses are falsified, that scientists are motivated to propose new hypotheses in order to continue to develop new theories through iterative falsification. In the view of falsificationists, scientific progress is made, regardless of the outcome of falsification. 
Having discussed the advantages of falsificationism, let's now talk about its three main limitations. First, the conditional requirements for falsification may lead to incorrect conclusions. In other words, an experiment may falsify a theory, not necessarily because the theory is wrong, but because the premise that supports the experiment is wrong. For example, until telescopes were well developed, scientists could not make accurate measurements of the size of planets, leading to many incorrect falsifications in astronomy. Second, falsification tends to nip a potential hypothesis in the bud. For instance, Copernicus hypothesized that the Earth rotates on its own axis once a day. Back then it was argued that if the Earth did rotate, and a stone was dropped from the top of a tower, it would not have landed at the base of the tower, but rather somewhere far away. This was because the Earth would have rotated a certain angle as the stone was falling. We now have a good argument to counter that reasoning. Since the stone has inertia in the horizontal direction, it falls right below the top of the tower and does not drift. But the concept of inertia did not exist at that time, and even scientists like Copernicus could not refute the argument. If the scientists had been resolute enough to accept the falsification, Copernicus's theory might have been abandoned in the early stage due to incorrect falsification. Third, falsificationism needs some form of dogmatism, but this contradicts falsificationism itself. The previous experiment where a stone is dropped from the top of a tower suggests that, we cannot always verify if falsification is true at that moment. This may be due to limited experimental conditions, or the incompleteness of the theories that are being tested. So a falsification that seems to be true at present may not hold in the years to come. Popper noticed this and admitted that it was often necessary to retain theories despite apparent falsifications. So although ruthless criticism is recommended in falsification, what would appear to be its opposite dogmatism has a positive role to play too. Alright, that's everything for part 1. We learned that the common sense view of science is based on observable facts. This traditional reasoning approach includes inductivism and falsificationism. They both stress the importance of evidence based on observations and experiments. While the common-sense view of science has its own drawbacks, it is simple and practical. It has made great contributions to the establishment and development of modern science. Today we are just sharing limited content. To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller please download our app. Just search for B-O-O-K-E-Y at Apple Store or Google Play. Get your free mind snack now.